This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you looking for a lightweight, comfortable system to hunt out of this season? If you said yes, you should be checking out the Tethered Phantom Saddle. And you might be saying, Clint, how is this thing so comfortable? Well, let me tell you how. Comfort channels. Check. Comfort Channels allows simple one-handed adjustment for leaning trees. gives you full control where you need it most. If you need it in your lower back, you slot into the low comfort channel. If you need it up in, in, your, in your lower back or, I'm sorry, under your rear end, then you slot it into the low comfort channel. Utila Bridge. Check. You might be saying, hey, what is a, a Utila Bridge? This is a one-hand adjust-on-the-fly bridge system that allows you to kind of find that hunting sweet spot no matter where you hang your tether. Lineman loops. Check. You might be saying lineman loops. Psh, whatever. Overrated, right? Wrong. Lineman root loops. Lineman loops. A little bit more rigid to where you can easily find them in, in the dark. I don't know how, how many times I spent time trying to get my carabiner to clip into my lineman's loop and just wishing it was just a little bit more sturdy. The Phantom Saddle has you covered there as well. Made in America? 100%. And if that wasn't enough, they just recently came out with the Predator XL platform. This platform is 40% bigger and has improved traction over the current Predator. I hunt out of the current Predator, a little smaller profile. But if you're one of those fellows that's got some big feet, some big boots, you might want to check out the Predator XL. So if you want to learn more about Tethered and all their products, head to tetherednation.com. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From A Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 188. Today we crank through another session of the Hunting Beast Listener Q&A miniseries with Dan Enfault, and today is part two of Reading Maps and Topo, so stay tuned. 
right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Hump day. Almost making it through yet another week, drawing one week closer to uh, whitetail season. For those of you that are going to get ready to head out west, if you're if you're hitting some of those early openers, or if you're actually headed out to do a little elk hunting or maybe a little antelope hunting, I know our buddy Johnny Utah is doing a little antelope hunting, so he's got probably just a little over a month, maybe I think, until he uh, until he heads to Montana and starts chasing some speed goats, which is something I think I need to I need to do at some point. Um, I don't know that I have the patience for it necessarily, uh, but I think it'd be really cool to, uh, really cool to try and ultimately get, uh, and get super frustrated with it, but I'm not going to have a whole lot of updates today. I'm going to keep this kind of short cause we have a, I have a podcast with Johnny Utah coming up here, uh, next week, um, that we'll kind of start talking about our goals, preparations, dreams, aspirations for this upcoming, uh, upcoming hunting season. It just kind of, I guess the only main update that I had for this week was I did go out and pull a couple cameras yesterday, uh, three of them. And, uh, truth, truthfully, it was, it was a little bit of a bust. Um, you know, it, it seems like, you know, I, I've mentioned this in the past, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the places that I'm hunting and stuff like that, you know, I don't have, um, you know, a destination food source in which, you know, I'm going to get a bunch of velvet pictures. It's just not the way things are set up. The public that I'm hunting isn't surrounded by a bunch of agriculture. So, you know, I'm really still relying on those kind of community scrape areas that were well-defined and maybe they're still hitting licking branches, which, you know, I've said in the past that I have evidence that they're still hitting some of these licking branches and so forth. And, uh, and that was where I placed some of these other cameras. So I'm getting deer traffic. So they're in the right place to see deer movement. Um, I'm just not catching a lot of mature bucks except on one camera, which I pulled. And I think I mentioned in the, in the previous podcast. So I got a ton of doe traffic. Um, and, and in some of these places I, I set up some mock scrapes and are actually hitting those and checking out those licking branches and so forth. Um, started using a little bit more of a Jeff Sturgis method, maybe is one way to say it of using some type of vine. Um, you know, I've been starting to implement that a little bit, uh, just to kind of sweeten the spot a little bit more and make it really obvious that they want to, you know, um, that they want to rub their face or the preorbital glands or whatever on, on that. It gives it a little bit of weight versus a rope, um, that they're able to kind of push, push against. So I've seen some success with that at this point, you know, at least they're, they're communicating and using it, but it's been predominantly does and younger bucks. Uh, with the exception of that one group that I had seen, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, I think it was uh, early June, is when those uh, those images were from. But uh, and the one the one camera I hung it, and um, I must have not have been paying a, paying attention when I was looking at the viewfinder uh, whenever I set it up because I had it set up, you know, kind of on a steep angle, so I was really having to point it pretty far, you know, down to to get the image, and I was getting you know some deer, but I was getting a lot of the tops of their backs. So that was a fail on my part that I just didn't pay enough attention whenever I was setting that camera up. Or it may have moved because I usually set my bag out in front of it uh, so I can make sure I can see the bag in the window. And if I can see the bag, then I know I'll be able to see the deer. And so I'm not sure if when I left, maybe, you know, the uh, stick that I was using to help point it down, I don't know, maybe it shifted. But, you know, I did get some images on that, but a lot of them were, were, were does. And, uh, and then there were some deer just, I was just missing completely where I was seeing the tops of their backs and just, you know, wasn't getting a, getting a good look at their, their head. And that was a, a lot of those pictures. So I made some of those adjustments yesterday and then started working on the trailer a little bit and got the solar panel, uh, actually installed yesterday, ran all the cabling. So the solar generator is in the, the, the panel is on the roof and it is outside charging as we speak. And then, um, I think the only thing that's really left to do that are majors, I need to put a window in and I need to put the floor in. And once those two things are done, you know, it'd be 
some small things like putting a toolbox on the front and getting some scissor lifts or some scissor jacks to uh, stabilize it whenever I park it. So, so a few odds and ends like that. But I mean, I really only have probably two, I got to put a shelf into. So I really only have like two major projects left to do. So I'm probably going to go out and do some of that after I'm done recording this in the ridiculously hot, hot summer heat. It's supposed to be like 97, uh, 97 degrees today. But uh, before, I, w- I do want to get jumped into this podcast. Cool episode today. Part number two of Reading Maps and Topo with Dan Enfelt. But before I do that, I want to do just a little bit of housekeeping here and let you guys know that our buddies at Exodus are kicking off their Velvet Fest campaign that they do annually. And if you're not familiar with what hashtag Velvet Fest is, it's the official start to deer season and Exodus is helping us get the ball rolling for everyone's summer scouting. Uh, I know for me, at least whenever whenever Velvet Fest hits, it means that it's time to make sure my cameras are out. Or for me, in some instances, it's time to start kind of checking some of those cameras. Just at minimum, you want to make sure that they're deployed so you start getting some of those Velvet pictures. So this will be running from July 31st to August 21st. And they're all they're going to be giving away some killer prizes for people who use the hashtag hashtag Velvet Fest on social to share any of their white tail adventures that that they're taking uh, that they're taking part in during the course of the summer. Also, if you're looking for a trail camera, hashtag Velvet Fest is the perfect opportunity to get ready for this season. So every single camera, every single order comes with a random prize card that you'll have to scratch off that will re- reveal a prize. And since I'm buddies with those guys, I, I have a little bit of the drop on, uh, on what those might be. And they are some killer deals. So you're going to want to make sure you take, take full advantage of that, but not just that to sweeten the pot even more each week, they have a special offer along with a grand prize. So just as a teaser here, you know, here are a few of the grand prizes are going to be given away each week, uh, during the velvet fest celebration. So the first week, uh, they will be giving away a 2021, October Archery Hunt with Steve Shirk Guide Services. And if you don't know who Steve Shirk is, check out the Exodus podcast. They've had him on a couple times. The dude gets on monsters. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania. That would be a killer, killer hunt to uh, to be on. Uh, week two, uh, they are giving away a shoulder mount from Uran Taxidermy. So you want to, you know, maybe you kill that big deer with Steve. You know, maybe you, maybe one of your buddies wins week two. Maybe you can swindle him into giving you his taxidermy uh, credits. Uh, week number three, they're giving away a September archery hunt for this season with Wicked Obsession in Kentucky and a shoulder mount from National Award-winning studio Full Draw Taxidermy. Those are some pretty killer prizes. Uh, for any order on the website during the designated week, you'll be automatically entered with any purchase on the website for the grand prize. There's a lot to this campaign, so you'll want to head over to the exodusoutdoorgear.com and make sure you're signed up for their newsletter because you won't want to miss out on any of these opportunities. If you're not familiar with Exodus, which I'm not sure how you could, couldn't could be by listening to this podcast, I'll give you the quick Cliff Notes version of them. Over the last five years, Exodus has consistently shown that they build quality trail cameras that flat out work. And of course, they have the best trail camera warranty, period. Every single camera has a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. That's right, five years, literally half a decade, you'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely, you won't need it because their cameras already are built to last. So be sure to take part in the Velvet Fest celebration and uh, tag me in any of your pictures as well because I want to see what you guys are up to. All right, so this this next question, I'm curious your your answer on this, Dan, because, you know, you know, I will you know, you know, learning a lot from the beast forum and from you specifically, it's like, I, you know, when I look at places that I'm going to scout, it's like, you know, especially in hill country, I'm looking at that top third leeward side. Like that's immediately like where I start to scout and look. And this person just asked, you know, you know, are there situations 
where you're predicting that bedding is occurring in bottoms as compared to the the upper one third. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, but it's not like hill bedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, but it's in hill terrain. All those trains mix. I mean, um, understanding farm bedding helps you a lot in hill country. Mm-hmm. Understanding big woods helps you a lot in farm. You know, um, they bed down low uh, um, quite often. I mean, I'd probably say like uh, maybe five or ten percent of the time you'll find, you know, five or ten percent of the beds in low spots. If it's really hilly terrain, you'll find a majority on the leeward sides. But um, a lot of cases, they get some sort of uh, um, air current activity that is very beneficial down low too. Hmm. I, uh, especially if the valleys are tight, you see a lot of low bedding because anytime you go near that valley, they can smell you because the wind just swirls in there like a toilet bowl. Right. And in those cases, they bed near a lot. And, and they, those deer can be very hard to kill. And I can remember um, finding a bed one time uh, on a ridge, seeing a giant buck come out of it. And I saw him come out of there more than once. And I went in there and I looked at that bed in the off season. And I was like, why the hell would he bed here? It just didn't make sense because mm-hmm. it was down low and the, the wind wasn't right. And it was a different wind the next time I saw him there. And I know one thing for sure. Mature bucks don't make mistakes. Yeah, They do everything for a reason. They don't put their their, their life on the line and, and bed in a bad spot, a bad situation. So he has some sort of advantage. But regardless, I was scratching my head on it. I was trying to figure out a spot to set up. And I moved around that bed looking at, there's several ways that deer came out of there. There's rub lines coming out in several ways. And when I went around that, that perimeter, just out of sight and sound, everywhere I stopped, if I dropped milkweed, it ended up at that bed. In a complete circle where I went wow. up the hill, down the hill, or around. That's crazy. And a lot of cases, they bed in spots where we don't understand what's going on, but there's a reason. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. There's a reason they're there. Yep. And in a lot of cases, they bed low because of uh, just a lot of pressure on the hillsides. The hillsides are too open; mm-hmm. they're too mature. Uh, um, they're not going to they're not going to sit on a leeward um, a leeward hill if it's mature trees and, and you can see for four hundred yards. Right. You know, what I mean, they're not just going to sit there like a sitting duck in the open. Right. They need to see so, well enough right. to be able to see their back trail, but they, it can't be completely wide open. Is what you're saying, right? So stem count. Has right. A they want a little cover. It. Yeah. They, they need escape cover. They need a little bit of cover. Mm-hmm. So if there's there's no cover in the hills and there's cover down in the valley, they'll go down in the valley. If there's pressure in the hills and no pressure in the valley, they'll go down in the valley. Mm-hmm. So uh, they'll bed in the valley kind of like farmland or something where they, you know, they'll use uh, back to transitions, openings, uh, waterways, um, oxbows, kind of stuff like that. Right. But, yeah, they, they bed different ways and different terrains, too, you know. Mm-hmm. You've said something there that made made me think there's you know like a spot that I've been hunting in the past that when you said tight valleys equal I just wrote tight valleys equal equals bedding in the bottom and you might have just unlocked something for me in this one place that I'm hunting because like it's rugged terrain steep sides right and I found a little bit of bedding on on the on the on the upper one third um, but not as much as I would have thought. You know what I mean? This this is big woods too, so it's a little maybe less predictable only because they have so much room to roam and it's low deer density, so there's not a ton of competition and stuff like that. I mean, that probably all plays plays part of it. But I'm now thinking like maybe I've been looking in the wrong spot for bedding in this particular area based on mm. that because 
of like, I mean, these draws are deep and steep. I mean, is there so tight? Yes. Is it like, do you see it even more so whenever they're really, really steep or is it like, you know, more shallow ridges or like, have you, have you seen any kind of consistency with that? Um, you know, I, I, there's different scenarios for both. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I can remember, uh, some of the better stuff I saw where down low was in, um, Illinois where, where really, uh, the hill country is really, uh, washed out farmland. So it's steep draws down to rivers. Mm-hmm. It's not really hill country per se. It's washouts. Right. So, um, right. you, you'd be walking and it'd be all like grass and, um, uh, CRP, sage grass kind of crap, right? Mm-hmm. And then there'd be these cuts that go down. And I saw the same thing when I was out in Montana, honey. Hmm. But uh, you'd walk up to the edge of these things, and the bucks would be down in the center of the bottom, and they'd run out. You know, they're really hard to hunt because there wasn't much cover anywhere else, but they're just a tangle of crap. Mm-hmm. But, but again, even though they're not at the top third, they're down at the bottom, and they're in a draw, you know, drop milkweed or something that's just swirling down there. It's right. pulling the scent from every direction. And they can they can see you across the top. You step in there, a thick brush, you're making noise. You know, they've got a great scenario there. Right. Yeah, I think I mean, we, we mentioned it a couple times today. We mentioned it a couple times in the in the last, like, the wind and thermal session where it's like, I mean, one of the things that's changed the game quite a bit for me was actually, you know, not just carrying milkweed with me while I'm hunting, but carrying milkweed with me while I'm scouting and right. being able to yep. look just at like that prevailing wind. Cause it's, let's say for example, it's like the places that I hung cameras this past week and I've been in twice, right? I was in it once in the winter when I scouted it originally, I was in it once whenever I set some cameras, I'll probably go in one last time in like July to check cameras. And then that'll be it until the season opens and I'll let them sit and then I'll basically let them for the year. Right. But those three individual, those three instances that I'm in there, I'll be dropping milkweed and looking at what my prevailing wind is and taking into consideration the time of the day and trying to get an understanding of like wind mapping that spot for, for each prevailing wind that I had an experience with. That way I kind of can anticipate what's happening. And so I think the next time I head into this spot, like I need to make sure I'm checking out that bottom because I've avoided the bottom a little bit because I've just been spending time up top and I think I'm missing, I think I'm missing an opportunity, honestly. Um, so you yeah. just, you might unlock something there for me. So hopefully there's we have two a- kinds of hunters. There's the, there's the kind that says, uh, wow, did you see that deer come out of there? That was cool. <laughs> and then there's the killer and he's the guy that says, why did that deer come out of there? And he, and he wants to know the answer. Right. Yeah. Always asking why is what puts deer on the walls. Yeah. You know, trying to, trying to answer that question. Why is he doing that? And don't take anything for granted that he just, you know, it was random. Yeah. There's no such thing as random with mature bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, the least... so you should always be asking that why. Yeah, yeah. They're the they're like they're they're the yeah. least random critter when they get to that age that you'll that you'll probably ever see. You know, so. Right. Um, this next question, man, is interesting. Um, I, it actually made me think whenever I saw it. Like it stumped me for like a second. I was thinking about it, and I was just really wanted to know what you kind of thought of it because I've never thought of it this way. And what he says is he's like. Have you seen any correlation between a buck's core area or buck core areas in general in change in elevation? So he's like, for example, you know, say there's a 200 foot change in elevation over 2000 acres. The buck, the buck's core area was like, I'll give you an example, five miles. Right. Um, and then compared to like, maybe there's a thousand foot change in elevation over 2000 acres. The buck's core area is now 
two miles or whatever the case is. Have you seen any kind of like relationship to the elevation change over, over so many acres kind of starting to dictate how much that buck was going to move and where he was going to primarily live? Yeah, I can't, I can't say that I have. Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen drastic changes of, um, sizes of, uh, core buck areas. Um, where two bucks live in the same area. Mm-hmm. I've seen one buck has, a, uh, you know, uh, five to 10 mile square radius where you hardly ever see them, but you see them all over the place. And the other one's tight in a little hole and you never see them out of it, you know? Right. Um, but, um, I can't say that I, I've put together a relationship with, uh, elevation. It's a good question though. Yeah. And, and the guy might be onto something. Yeah. I just can't say that, uh, that uh, I can answer that. Right. Yeah. Personally. I'd, I'd be curious to know, like that would be a great question to ask, like, uh, like the Penn state deer biology, you know, uh, department yeah. or whatever that have a bunch of radio collared, you know, deer to kind of get a sense of like, you know, take two deer of, of a similar age that say that way, like at least like their maturity level experience and yeah. smarts maybe is, is similar, you know, that, you know, in one area, are you seeing them, their range larger versus smaller, depending on like how much elevation they're having to traverse. Cause I mean, if I'm just thinking about it logically, let's, let's just entertain ourselves. I'm like thinking about it going, we know deer will take the path of least resistance, right? Especially as they get older, they become many cases set in their ways and even more kind of, uh, you know, consistent to or stuck to a pattern, if you will. I've heard some guys say, you know, that, you know, as they've seen deer mature, they're actually their, their, their bedding spots become fewer and fewer and they actually get a smaller and smaller core area. And so if I were to take yep. all that as truth, right, I would say then if you add in the strain of additional elevation, I would say that their core area would even be smaller than if it were flatter would be my, would be my thinking. Like that would be my rationale and reasoning. What do you think? Do you think that sounds like somewhat reasonable or is it crazy talk? No, I don't know. Um, hard to say. You can say crazy talk. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> crazy talk. <laughs> there we go. Um, all right. We got just a handful more here, and then we'll be wrapped up with this one. I'm just kind of looking because we covered we covered a lot of these already. Um, all right. Here's a good one. This, is, this, this, I think, is all applicable for a lot of people. This fellow writes in and says, you know, for people who plan to hunt out of state or new or new terrain or terrain types for the first time, what is the biggest learning curve, you know, whenever you're encountering, you know, marsh terrain hunting for the first, uh, for this first time, or maybe stepping into hill country for the, the, the first time. So what, like for an out of state hunter that's traveling and they're going to maybe go, you know, maybe the guys from hunting the swamps in New Jersey and he's going to go to the, you know, hill country and, in Southern Ohio, like what's, what are those big learning curves for people who are going to travel out of state and do new things? Oh, geez, that's, that's kind of, uh, of a hard question. Um, uh, you asked me to, to, to tell you what, uh, goes through a guy's mind when he goes into something new. Right. I think it all depends on a person's personality and how he adapts. Yeah. I mean, some people are, uh, really good at, uh, studying things and some people just kind of jump into things and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think for me, I, and I can answer on me, but I can remember when I was young and I started venturing out and, and trying a lot of new areas and stuff. And, uh, getting out of the old habits was the hardest thing for me. Yeah. You know, I'd come from like, uh, Wisconsin and go hunt Iowa 
and I'd want to get into the thickest cover in the world because of what I'm used to here in Wisconsin. And I'd be watching these bucks walk out in open fields all over the place and I'd be like, what the hell? You know, but it was a different terrain. It was a whole different <laughs> deal. Um, and, and the difference between a killer and a guy who sits trees is that the killer adapts. You know, um, you, you're going to struggle at first, but you adapt. Uh, I, I can say this about it, um, that going out and trying new things is really good for a hunter. Yeah. It's good for your whole psyche and everything you do. I mean, um, if you just understand one terrain, like a lot of guys would be like, oh, I'm, I'm a farmland hunter. I know farms inside out. And that's all I hunt. Okay, great. But I can tell you this, that I learned a hell of a lot about farm hunting when I stepped up the hill hunting country. Yeah. Because I learned how much those little elevations matter. And I started seeing, seeing it like, oh, that's why those bucks are bedding on the farm like this. Right. Yeah. Because you didn't really notice that the 10-foot elevation made that much of a difference. But when you start comparing it to the bigger elevation, seeing what the bucks do and how they bed and when they're there in the winds, you start to think, oh, okay, okay. And, and that's just a, you, you know, that's an easy one. But there are a lot of things you learn by, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone yeah. and trying some things. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll a hundred percent agree with you, man. Like that is, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like it's hard to give someone a stock answer of like what the biggest challenge is going to be. I think the biggest challenge for a lot of guys who are going to go out of state for the first time, especially if they're hunting public land is the thing between their ears. Um, because, oh, yeah. because you know, it is, you, you're going to be successful, but you've got to reconcile and understand what success means on a trip like that. It's not necessarily always no. filling a tag, right? Um, <laughs> it's like you may come home several years with a, with an unfilled tag until you figure out how to, how to hunt that particular area, especially if you're not able to scout it, especially if you don't live close to it. You know what I mean? It's like if you're just going out and you're traveling several hours once a, once a year, it's like just think about the person who hunts their your, the example you gave, their farm, and how often they're successful on their farm, right? Like most you know guys who are, just, you know, weekend warrior hunters, you know, maybe they kill a buck like once every five years, two, three years, three years, you know what I mean? And that's an area that they know. Mm-hmm. Now take that and like, you're going somewhere completely new, unknown. You don't have a clue what deer are there. You don't really know much about the terrain, like all those things. And like, instead of your odds being like 15%, which is like not even realistically <laughs> realistic, even in, in a good sense or, you know, in a great opportunity, like they're much lower than that. You know what I mean? Like, like 3%, maybe, you know what I mean? It's like, that's, right. that's the opportunity. Like, you know, when I was talking to the Zach the one day, he said, you know, people think, you know, they see these hunting shows and stuff like that, you know, like on like the outdoor channel or whatever. And it's like, they're killing these deer all the time and stuff like that. And he made a good point. He said, filming and hunting this year. And this would have been last, when did I talk to him? I talked to him like right after ATA. So it would have been like, like late season was just over. He said he had been part of either filming or hunting at least at that point, a hundred different hunts. Right. And in those hundred mm-hmm. hunts, he, I think he said he was part of two kills where he killed on one and another guy killed on one. And so he's like, for a guy who's in the timber for a hundred days this year to only have two kills, he's like, that's 2% success rate for a person who's doing it every day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he's like, and so guys jump into some of these things with unrealistic expectations of like, I'm going to go for seven days. And then they're pissed if they don't see something. It's like, Hey man, you might not see shit in seven days. 
You know what I mean? Like not only will you not kill, might you not kill anything, you may not see anything in seven days. And I think you just you have know, to be, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I've struggled with that myself. I get a lot of people nowadays. Um, it must be something with uh, the young people nowadays managing their time or something, mm-hmm. but they'll tell me they, uh, they've got 10 or they've got 15 days to hunt in a season. Mm-hmm. And they want to know how to have success in that 10 or 15 days. And I tell them, you know, look at my success. So a lot of times I go 15, 30 days without seeing a deer because right. of the way I'm hunting. You know, you got to put in the time, you yeah. know, you, you're going to have to expect, uh, you know, the struggle a little bit if you're hunting like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred, hundred percent. So John, man, I'm curious, man. I know you do some traveling out of state, you know, you're going to be doing a fair amount of out of state hunting this year, just by, by the nature that you move to a new area and stuff like that. You know, how do you, how are you adapting to, to new places? Like what's your approach to that? Well, last year was my first out of, out of state trip. And, uh, well, other than being in college in West Virginia, but I got to know the area. So that wasn't quite the same. The last year I went to Ohio and uh, it was a four day hunt. I met my two of my college buddies the second day and I spent all of the first day and first half of the second day just uh, just covering miles and seeing where the deer were. I did a lot of driving. It was a, an all day scouting event and then I did some glassing the next morning and I ended up spooking a nice buck and went back in there the the third day on the morning and he ended up winding me. It was down in the bottom and uh, he made a scrape right out of sight, right from where I walked in, I ended up hitting my ground set right after, uh, right after, or right before he would have walked down into the bottom that I was on. And, uh, the, the second or yeah, the last, the day that I killed, I, I went up into an area that I was just seeing a lot of does. I didn't see any bucks up in there, but I was seeing does every time I was driving by this area. It was a little overlooked uh, strip mine area right beside the road. And I was I was just frustrated because I just scared the uh, one buck the day before. So I was like, well, I'll jump in here with all these does, and I'll just work my way along this this bank. And it's, it's about 200 yards from the road to the top of this ridge. It's all strip mine, no trees. And at the top's a big cow pasture. So I was like, I'll just work my way along here and sit in the openings for about an hour, an hour and a half. And, and I ended up calling when I sat down in the second spot that I sat down in and did the whole deal, rubbed the rattling antlers against the sapling, grunted, dopely, rattling antlers, and this buck came running in and I ended up shooting him. <laughs> That was how it ended. That was the Ohio. Trip. So, so, the, so the lesson here is: is don't listen to John because he he went on his first trip and killed one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had the, I had one of my luckiest years I've ever had. Right, right. But I mean, the the reality is: is you went and you put in some work. Like the the first thing yeah. that you said that I took away from that was: is that you spent like a lot of your time scouting versus hunting. And I think that's the other part. And there people was have to so get good many with. hours online scouting. Yeah, countless yeah. hours online. So. I think if I were to change it, or when I go back this this next trip, I won't spend, uh, right off the bat, I won't spend as much time just walking and scouting. I'm going to do more of the freelance style that, that you've been putting some shows on about and right. work my way and hunt my way in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, that'll be the biggest thing I change. 
Yeah. I mean, I kind of almost look at it as scouting and hunting at the same time, right? Now I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not making anything or creating anything. I mean, these are things I've picked up from guys like Dan and, you know, and stuff like that, the words, like I've just got confident enough to start to adapt it because I started seeing success. I started increasing my encounters. I started finding new areas I probably would have overlooked in the past and stuff like that. And so to me, it's like, I think the biggest mindset change for a dude that's going to go out of state, Dan, I'd be curious what you think of this, but is that you're always hunting. Like, so don't look at scouting as like a waste of your time. Cause you should be hunting while you're scouting. Does that make right, sense? Right. Yeah. I see that a lot. You see uh, guys that, that are like, well, I can't, I, I can't scout cause I, you know, I can only go there for seven days to hunt, you know? And it's like, well, you better spend some time while you're hunting scouting. And mm-hmm. yeah. you know, you, you, you got to get on deer. You can't just go out there and just climb a tree and think you're going to be successful. Right. But a lot of guys got that mindset, you know, um, yeah. Or they pick a couple spots on a map, and they don't do like we're talking, where mm-hmm. it's a rough starting idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They go out there and they depend on that. Yeah. Um. And and, and that's bad. And and you, you know when you get beyond that, the whole time you guys were talking, I was thinking about this: is the the psych of hunters. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of funny the way they think when they go on a trip like that. You know, um, I do my best when I'm alone. Yep. I concentrate. I spend the whole time scouting, hunting and stuff. And when I go with somebody, I'm always distracted and I'm worried about that other person and how he's going to do. And, you know, worrying if he ate right or whatever. I mean, I don't know yep. what's wrong with me, but that's, that's <laughs> the way it gets, you know, but right. I go, <laughs> I shouldn't have compassion. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, think, uh, I, think, anywho, I think the moral of the story there is Dan went soft on it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So when, uh, when you look at other people, I see a lot of people, who like can't handle going alone. They, they break mm-hmm. down. Yeah. They end up leaving early. They, 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 uh, uh, don't know what to do with themselves. I mean, I get, I get friends and stuff that, uh, who, who obviously I won't name, but I mean, get like, Hey, can you come hunt with me? Can, can, I'm, I want to go do this hunt. Can you come with me? Right. It's like, dude, why don't you just go out there and do it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to hunt or you want to hold hands and eat marshmallows in the fire? You know, it's, <laughs> For me, hunting is hunting, you know, right. and uh, a lot of people can't get over that alone time, you yeah. know, and I think that's the greatest thing about hunting, and, you know, yeah. that's when you put your whole life, to, life's perspectives in order and, and, and all that. I mean, it's, you, you know, uh, life's so hectic when you're not hunting, yeah. just getting some alone time is, to me is awesome. Yeah. But I think a lot of people can't handle that. No, they I have to have somebody to go with them. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you, man. Like, you know, that was one of the yeah, me too. My favorite things about this past year going to Iowa was it was completely solo. Like, I had a buddy who lived there, but he lived thirty minutes from where I was staying and hunting. So, I, I think I went over twice and like had dinner with he and his family or whatever. You know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. but it was in over the course of whatever it was, fifteen days or whatever. But you know, yeah, he would call me just about every day and be like, "Hey, man, why don't you come over and have dinner?" And I'd be like, "Oh, man, I'm locked in." You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm cool. Then, I'm going to eat and I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to get up and do it again tomorrow. And it was like, yeah. it, it just, I learned a ton in that trip because I just focused on deer. You know what I mean? And then if you yeah. are going to go with a dude, you know, one of, you know, our mutual friends, Dan, Chad Sylvester, like that's like one of the only guys, possibly the only guy that I'll actually go on a hunting trip with because he's as neurotic about it as I am. And he is as myopic about it. When he gets singularly focused, we just grind, we get after it. There's no, checking in on each other to see if we're okay. There's no like, are you tired or you want to get, you know, there's none of that. Like we're there to sleep and like trade notes really at the end of the night. You know what I mean? Like when we get back, there's no, 
what time do you want to meet to eat tonight? It's like, I'll get back when I get back. You do you, I'll do me. And then if we have time, well, if we have time to right. talk when we both get back, then we will, we'll trade some notes. If I see something that sparks, you know, that caught my eye and I'm like, and I'm not going to hunt that tomorrow. And you maybe haven't gotten mm-hmm. on anything. I'll say, you might want to check this out and he'll do the same for me, yeah. but there's no obligation to like hold hands and eat, you know, eat marshmallows by the fire, as you say. You know what I mean? It's like we're we're there, we're there to get after it. You know, and if nothing else, we're there. Like when one starts slipping, you're like, "Hey, dude, you're slipping. Like, get your shit together." You know what I mean? So that's that's exactly the point I was going to get into. Is is that uh, you really got to think about who you're taking with you before you pick a partner for a hunt? Yeah, I mean that that is that is very important if you want success. I mean, people hunt for different reasons. Some people hunt to get away with their buddies, for sure. Yeah, but. uh, but, you know, just because a guy is a, a a good drinking buddy that you can go out and play pool with and he's got your back if somebody jumps your ass. Right. Doesn't mean he's the guy you want to camp with you when you're hunting. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So I think we covered that one well enough. Dan, if you have time, we'll catch two more. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's yeah? fine. Okay, cool. I'm good. Um, so this fellow writes in and says, uh, John, you okay too for another two questions or so? Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, that's um, no problem. Awesome. Um, so this fellow writes in and says, uh, do you guys think that most mature bucks in hill country avoid direct travel in certain topo features? For instance, a mature buck would skirt a bench or a saddle, whereas a young buck or doe might travel right in the middle of it. If so, how would you hunt these? What do you think, Dan? I think that's all relative on pressure. Mm-hmm. They learn not to go to those spots. Yeah. So if um, those benches are uh, pressured, if they get hunted more than once or twice a year, uh, those bucks learn that those are not good spots. I don't think that they understand to, and, and they reason enough to understand to uh, avoid all benches or anything like that. I think they avoid right. spots where they've had problems. Yeah. So I, I do agree with them that they avoid those spots, but I think they're avoiding them for a reason. Right. They're probably getting over, over, over hunted. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't take much. I mean, uh, uh, that property that I hunt, uh, with my buddy, um, the little tiny farm down the street that's pressured all around. We have, um, some permanent stands on there because there's very few trees and there's a couple of really good funnels and just some observation stands and stuff. And it's funny how you can watch, uh, from an observation stand, watch, uh, a good buck that's been out there for a few years walk through and avoid going past any tree stand, even though we only hunt them three times a year. They yeah. still know where they're at. Yep. And they'll, you'll, you'll watch them look up at the stand and kind of stick their head around to see if you're in it. <laughs> and every time I kill a buck over there, most of the time it's from an aggressive move moving to where they're at, not from a permanent stand. Right. Yeah. They, they figure out the spots where people hunt. Yeah. So, yes, they're figuring out those benches, but I don't think they're figuring out because it's a bench. I don't think they know, oh, I got to avoid benches. <laughs> right. Like, like uh, we might know to avoid uh, Walmart parking lots at 2 in the morning in, the, in South Milwaukee. Right. But <laughs> I don't think they're going to get that. They just know that uh, when they walk through that parking lot in South Milwaukee at 2 in the morning, they got their ass kicked and their wallet stolen. Right. They're not going to go through there again. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. No, that's I, I, I 100% agree with you, man. And like the one thing I would add based on like where would you hunt, it's like, no, like I'm looking for a little education here to see if I'm thinking about things the right way, Dan. But I would look at what are those secondary terrain features around that that would be the path of least resistance to get them wherever it is that you've determined that they're going. 
right? And so if it's a food source, right. like, well, what is the di- what is the option? What is the alternative to that? Like, where is that secondary terrain feature that is likely once pressure hits becomes the primary terrain feature? You know what I mean? Like, that's the one so, thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that if that buck's going around a feature like a uh, bench, like he's talking, mm-hmm. it's probably not food related. It's probably dough related. Right. So he's it's probably doing one of two things. He's either going to the downwind side on the main trail that goes around to the downwind side, or he's going to the side that the does exit on, and he's mm-hmm. smelling the doe trails, right. exit and entrance trails, to see if one's in heat. Either, right. But there's going to be one side he, he tends to go to, and if it's if, if it's rut related, there's going to be a rub line there, even if it's uh, old rubs or whatever. There'll be scars on trees; you'll be able to see where they they travel and how to how to hunt it. You answered my follow up question because I was literally going to ask you. The next question was going to be: So, is it would it be similar to how? Um, and I'm just framing it and how I've like seen this before from my own experience. Is so whenever they go into a food source, right? Like usually the, the trails that are perpendicular into the food source, a lot of times doe trails, right? The one that is running parallel to the food source, cutting all those trails going in, oftentimes is like a trail that a, that a buck will use. And it may not be as apparent, right? Like those other mm-hmm. ones are kind of beaten yep. in, but it'll be, it'll be subtle, but it will perpendicular all those doe trails. Is it similar the same way? So if you have like a bench that's, that's, that's running along a ridge and like it's exactly. going to get pressure, it's going exactly. to be a secondary he's, trail. He's sent yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, so if that's the case, I mean, you'll actually see that those rubs will actually be on the trails coming from the bench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But they're not really. They're on the faint trail that's crossing those trails. He's just marking that trail yep. as he crosses it. So yeah. you'll see they're in line. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yep. Sometimes I'm, you can't even see that faint trail because it's only used in rut a lot of time. Yeah, no, that's I had that this year in Iowa. Like there was like I had to pick up like I it, it dawned on me probably like the sixth day. Like I finally figured out like it was after I missed that one deer because I couldn't figure out why he walked away from like the primary scrape area, and it was because there was a super subtle little trail that went down down into this draw, and and I didn't recognize it until I got down and looked, and I was like I would have never thought that that was a deer trail just because around here hunting smaller kind of parcels, deer just beat you know, trails into the ground where it's obvious where they're moving in out where I was at in Iowa was kind of a big wood setting to where it's like, man, deer trails out there were really, really faint. They weren't real obvious, you know what I mean? In, in a lot of places that I was yeah. at. And that was, that was a, a learning moment for me. Cause I was like, Oh, th- so this is actually a deer trail. You know what I mean? I was like, I would have never thought that. And so then I started recognizing them as I was going, I could start to pick them out, you know, but yeah, that's, that's interesting, man. Like that, uh, I, you know, I, I, hundred percent, you know, they're going to avoid that because of, because of pressure. The other thing too, I want to ask you, this is off topic of, of, uh, maps and topo, but I was having this conversation about secondary rut, like rut activity or secondary, uh, um, scrapes rather secondary scrapes and secondary scrape lines or secondary primary scrapes, because, you know, in high pressure areas, you know, I've seen this, you know, and I was actually talking to Zach about this at one point and I'll find like a set of scrapes, say like, very as soon as they start laying them down right so it's just say mid-october for like a, a ballpark right and in pa mm-hmm. much like probably what you have in wisconsin like a ton of pressure on, on public especially like those like more easy to access areas and a lot of times see scrapes kind of laid down in those spots and then they'll dry up and vanish right and then what i started mm-hmm. to see was less activity but that there were actually started to be secondary scrape lines that were set up further back into the timber once the pressure pushed them off that 
off those first scrapes that they laid down. Have you seen anything like that as well, where it's like almost like a, they, they lay down one set, it goes cold, the pressure comes in, they then move further back in closer to their bedding cover, and then they lay down. Now, I know bedding cover, you always want to try to find scrapes in those areas, but I've actually seen where they've laid them down, they've dried up, and then they've literally moved, you know, whether it was 200, 300, 400 yards, whatever it was, back further into the cover. And then that would be the one that would stay open and be tended like through rut, you know, through in kind of like into late rut, if you will. What are your, and have you ever seen anything like that? So I haven't, I, I haven't, uh, recognized that exact behavior, but I could, I could see that happening because I could see pressure moving the deer and they're going to move the scrapes with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know that it's like a plan or anything, but right. if, if you push them out of one area and they move into another, they're going to scrape there and they usually don't move far. Right. So they, they might move from one transition to the next, which ain't far. It's just moving away from the people coming in there. Right. Yeah. But the spots where those scrapes are all year is probably the better area all year anyways because I think the mature bucks figure out that pattern and the younger ones are ones that keep kicked around and shift around, you know? Right, yeah. That It's usually it's usually those young deer a lot of times, too, that are getting up, getting surly early. They've not quite figured out when the game kicks off. And so they're, you know, at least I've seen, you know, on camera and stuff like that. Might be different in other places, but I've seen more often, more frequently, younger deer laying down the earlier sign. And then as it gets a little closer to, prime time it's whenever the the big boys kind of step out and say all right young fellas you know i'm glad you get all the girls riled up for me i'm gonna go ahead and take my pick now <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so but uh anything like that john for you man Have you seen anything similar to that or what's your experience been with kind of you know watching how scrapes kind of shift and move around sometimes yeah uh, you know i'm i don't really have a whole lot to comment on next i, I just don't really know how how they move around because i I only have one season of hunting on land that isn't the 90 acres I grew up hunting on. Mm-hmm. So I know where they all are on that property. So I just really, I'm not really sure yet. Right. Okay. That's fair enough, man. We're all here to learn some, all here to learn some stuff. You know, it's, uh, I, I yeah. like to admit that I, I feel don't... like I've learned more this year than <laughs> I have my entire hunting career. Right. That's good, man. It's good. I expect to see some killer yeah. pictures this year. <laughs> no, I'm um, hoping so. All right, so last question here, gents. We'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll close it with this one. Let me see here. This uh, pick the. We'll try to pick a good one here. A couple of these we've already kind of covered. It's, it's, um, all right. So this we'll end, we'll end on this one. It says, what is the number one thing to look for on topo maps in mountain slash steep slash hill country and then i think we can just take this for overall dan we can maybe make this the closer and be like you know what are we looking for in in that setting but overall like you know what are your kind of like top takeaways like whenever people are thinking about reading maps for steep hill country yeah let's start with that one you know what what do you what are we looking for in those those scenarios um we did kind of cover that i i think um you know that um those leeward hills and the little tiny knobs sticking off. I think mm-hmm. the little tiny knobs are better than the big points and, uh, the thermal hubs again and, uh, mm-hmm. the stuff that's overlooked by the roads that's uh, steep. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, we did kind of cover that. Yeah, one. we did actually. My bad. Let's, let's, uh, we'll rewind. We'll rewind that. Let's do this. Let's end on this one. So what are, what's Dan Enfault's kind of like top three things. If you're just kind of learning, to, to read maps like what are the things you you know you would suggest like hey if, if you're brand new at this you know and it's a lot to take in and it's a lot to like get good at reading them and stuff like that if you were to tell someone like no, hey no. just focus on these three things uh, i'll see if i can get through three but number one hits me right away is 
is that when you go scouting or you go hunting and you go in a new area, when you get back, look at it, or even when you're in the tree, if you're, you're there early or whatever, look at a map, an aerial, and look at how it lays out. See if you can determine, if the, you know, or look before you go in and guess, you know, but study those maps in between and correlate it with your hunting and scouting so that you start to determine and get an eye for thick cover versus open cover versus uh, mature trees. Um, a lot of times you can tell by the looks of the trees whether they're mature or not, um, but it takes an eye. It takes, you know, looking at them maps and looking at the terrain. It's not something like, like I can tell you how to do, but if you're actually looking at maps going in there hunting and coming back out, I mean, if you're asking a lot of questions about maps, you probably haven't mapped a lot and done that. Right. But you learn a lot by actually looking at what you've already scouted and saying, oh, 100%. that's where I was. This is what I was, I was doing. Uh, the second one is something we didn't cover. Um, and I should have answered that with the, the last question you were trying to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Uh, we'll do tight, it now. <laughs> tight lines on a top of map. Yeah. Where they come together tight. I mean, that's steep terrain. I mean, as long as it ain't a sheer drop off, the steeper the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to look at the steeper stuff, you know. Right. Okay. Um, and then number three, I don't know, maybe John has the third one. <laughs> John, you got the third one. What's the thing you look? What's the what's the thing you look at, buddy? Um, cut you off guard. I look at the aspect a lot because I around here we get the predominant west wind, so I'm, I'm looking for those west facing. Uh, ridges. Uh, I mean, initially, when I'm just uh, scout, not scouting for the day, I guess it would depend on the wind. So, uh, I guess I should answer that in a different way. Um, uh, no, that's fine. You can you can roll you can roll with that, yeah. man. All just right. Basically, so, looking for the leeward sides, right? Yeah, that, that's basically it. That'll be the first thing I'm looking for in Hill Country. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I kind of do the same thing. Like if I'm in, if I'm in a hill country, I'll say the one thing that I, uh, that I do a lot now more than anything is, uh, you know, a lot of the public that I'm hunting around where I'm at, um, there's not a lot of like, it's either flat or even the mountain stuff is so gradual that there's not any real distinct like terrain kind of like topography changes, right? It's all pretty gradual. And so it makes it really right. hard from a topo perspective to say like, this is the good stuff. So I have to spend a lot of boots on the ground. But So what I spend a lot of time doing, you know, is really looking for those hard transitions that are going to like create a definitive line. And those are the places that I'll go kind of look at immediately and then kind of move from there and follow the sign whenever I'm scouting to kind of figure out where I should be headed, headed next, you know, looking for clear cuts or any, like you were saying, Dan, like open spots in the timber or whatever, I've kind of honed in on those just because we have so much pressure around here um, that I need to find little places that other people aren't willing to walk into. And I've found like these clear cuts on top of these mountains oftentimes will have little swamps kind of built inside of them. And if I can figure out a way to get access into them, um, you know, I can often find a secondary transition line inside of them on top of the mountain where I can find, you know, bedding or at least, you know, in their general bedding area. And that was actually a couple of places I've hung cameras and actually one of them is a cell camera. And I literally set it up in the first night I had it there. I had two, two decent deer, two decent bucks come by, um, in velvet. So, you know, that's kind of like the thing that I'll, that's kind of the thing that I'll look for is, 
it's a little bit of both, right? It's a little bit of mountain and it's a little bit of swamp. So it's that, you know, I'm looking at the topo and the terrain. I'm trying to get to the elevation, but then I'm also looking at what are those internal kind of secondary transition lines um, to look for where they might be spending a lot of time. And that's oftentimes where I found a lot of sign and where I have found like deadheads or, you know, or old beds or whatever have been in that, in those general areas. So that's kind of my takeaway. Yeah. What's that, Dan? Go ahead. I was going to say that um, when you're looking at those topos too, um, there's one thing we didn't mention on that hill map site, there's mm-hmm. a, you can go to terrain, which is different from topo. It gives you like a 3d image of the shape of the land. Hmm. And a lot of times you can see the hidden benches on that, that nice. you can't see on the topo. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing it's like, yeah, I'm I a, use terrain maps a lot. Yeah. I get fooled by benches a lot too, where it's like, it doesn't look like enough of a bench. And then whenever I actually scouted, it's much more of a bench than, than it looked like on the map or vice, vice versa. But, uh, all right, yeah, they show up really well in that terrain uh, yeah. feature. Yeah, you can really see like the 3D kind of how it lays down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Well, gents, that is a uh, that is a wrap for uh, this uh, this next session of uh, reading Topo and Maps. I appreciate you guys joining me. John, thanks for uh, coming on and taking part. Dan, thanks as always for, uh, for jumping on here. If anyone is not following the Hunting Beast, you should be following the Hunting Beast forum. You should be on their Facebook page. And you should be checking out Dan's site, waiting for his sticks, and uh, when the stand happens to come out. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe there as well. I'll be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.